This is the sidebar for the week of August 18th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The quality of life in Venezuela has really collapsed in the last two years in particular. Um, there's no food. There's really not enough food. Um, the government tries to distribute some imported food with what little money they have door to door, but it's really not enough. Earlier this month, President Trump addressed the deepening political and economic crisis in Venezuela, stating the U.S. may consider military options if the situation gets worse. This week, we speak to Francisco Toro. He is a Venezuelan journalist and the executive editor of the English language blog Caracas Chronicles about the current state of affairs in Venezuela. Francisco Toro, as you look at the situation in your home country of Venezuela, What's behind the turmoil, and why is the country so deeply divided? Well, Venezuela really fell afoul of the politics of populism. Um, in 1998, uh, Hugo Chavez, uh, who was a very radical left-wing former army officer that tried to stage a coup against the government in 1992, he ran for president in a very radical and very divisive campaign of of uh, us against them. Um, he really uh, sounded this criticisms about why the country was already back then doing so poorly economically, why people felt left out. And it was a very aggressive discourse. Uh, his take was simple. The rich and the United States have stolen your birthright, and we're going to get it back for you. And uh, that kind of discourse has been at the center of the way Venezuela was governed from 1999 until Chavez died in 2013 of cancer and has remained at the center of the political sphere in these last four years. And the government has sort of weaponized this kind of populist message to drive a wedge between its supporters and its opponents and has done that really effectively for, well, almost two decades now. How large is the country? How many people live there? And how's its economy doing? So Venezuela is 30 million people. It's about the size of Texas and Oklahoma put together. Uh, And uh, the economy is doing about as poorly as an economy has ever done outside of wartime in the last 100 years. Um, it has contracted in per capita terms by about 40% since 2013. Um, there is now outright hunger, mass hunger in the country, and, and not just among you know, the poorest people. Hunger has sort of become democratized. It has gone up into the middle class. Uh, people don't get to eat three times a day, um, most people. Uh, People have substituted high-protein foods for just carbohydrates. It's really whatever it takes to survive. There is a serious, serious economic crisis uh, in Venezuela. And and again, remarkably, all of this in the absence of war. Usually for an economy to go this badly wrong, you need to have two sides shooting at each other. And we haven't had that. We've just had terrible economic management. And yet it remains an oil-rich country, correct? That's right, and that's that's a real irony. I mean, the the real backdrop of what happened here is that between 2000 and 
2004 and 2013, 14, there was a huge oil boom. Uh, if you remember the, the era of really high oil prices, you know, 2007, 2008, that, that was hitting Americans' pockets pretty hard. And a lot of that money was finding its way into the coffers of the Venezuelan state. The oil bonanza in that decade hit $1 trillion, which for a small middle-income country like Venezuela is just a staggering amount of money. Um, the Venezuelan government took all that money, spent it all, created a huge consumption boom, which kept the government really, really popular for most of that decade, and then borrowed on top of it. So we didn't just spend the entire oil bonanza, but we spent more than the oil bonanza. Um, that consumption boom made the government really, really popular. Um, when oil prices began to crash in 2014, the government suddenly realized, oh, not only did we not save any of the uh, trillion-dollar bonanza that we were just on the receiving end on, of, but we also uh, took out all these new debts that now we have to pay interest on, and uh, oil prices are much lower, and we just can't afford it. So um, a lot of what's happened uh, since oil, crisis, oil prices cratered is really down to the government not having planned for something like this because there are many other oil countries that were on the receiving end of like big oil booms in 2014 2014 and i'm not just talking about norway i'm talking about places like ecuador and bolivia and brazil and nigeria and indonesia and in none of those places have you seen an economic cataclysm like the one that venezuela has gone through because you know they took some provisions and they, they managed the cycle a little bit more more reasonably well, that answers part of my next question. But from your standpoint, what other mistakes were made? The, so those are the sort of macroeconomic policy mistakes. But in the micro policy, in the way you run sort of the day-to-day economy, um, the government instituted this very strict price control policy over pretty much everything. So governments, they didn't necessarily take over all uh, privately owned businesses, although they did a lot of that. But what they did is that they, they basically decided that if you had a privately owned business, you didn't really get to run it the way you wanted to. The government would set prices for you, and they would set maximum um, profit margins for you. And you needed this huge explosion of paperwork to pretty much do anything. They banned, for instance, firing workers for any reason. It is not allowed to fire a worker from a Venezuelan company. If if you go in Venezuela, if you go up to your boss, you spit in his face, you threaten him, and you punch him, you can go to jail for assault, but you cannot be fired. Um, so um, the, these policies of the, the price controls, the crazy labor regulations, they really put businesses in a position where often it was literally illegal for them to make money. Like they had to lose money, and and if they made money, it was legal. So many of these these businesses just closed up shop. Production of of domestic goods, agriculture, food, um, you know, when manufacturing, we had all of that stuff went into deep declines during the the oil boom years. Uh, companies shut up uh, shop and and stopped working or were nationalized. And didn't really produce much. and But it wasn't a problem because you had this huge trillion-dollar oil bonanza. So you could just take oil money and import the stuff that you used to, to produce locally. And that was fine until oil prices cratered. And suddenly you realized that not only did you not have any more money to import things, you'd also destroyed the companies that could produce them locally. And that's 
you know, if you really want to get at the roots of the hunger crisis today, it's it's that. It's the fact that the companies that might have produced the things that we can no longer import, they don't exist anymore. As you indicated, it's a relatively large country, originally part of Spain. It borders Colombia and Brazil. Pre-Hugo Chavez, what were relations like between the U.S. and Venezuela? Uh, they're pretty good. I mean, it should be understood. Venezuela was one of the earliest democratizing countries in Latin America. It, the, the last dictatorship, well, before this one anyway, the last dictatorship fell in 1958, and it was... Um, overthrown by a democratic movement that instituted competitive elections. We had elections every five years. The center-left and the center-right sort of shifted back and forth in power. Uh, the U.S. was the biggest oil buyer, and, uh, and there, there were relatively you know, pretty, good, pretty good relationships uh, between the U.S. and Venezuela. And Venezuela also had a, a very important role, first of all, in accepting um, refugees and, and political dissidents from countries in Latin America that were going through dictatorships when Venezuela had democratized, they would go to Caracas and seek asylum. And a lot of those people, when, when Chile and Argentina and Peru and Brazil, the other countries in the region, democratized, they ended up going back to their countries, and, and many of them ended up in, in government. Um, so the, the, an interesting wrinkle is that Venezuela, one of the earliest democratizers and a champion for democracy in, Venezuela, in Latin America in the 60s and the 70s and 80s, is now um, in the other position. And now Venezuelan exiles are having to take a refuge in other countries uh, in the region or in the U.S. as well. So when you talk to family, friends, neighbors in Venezuela, what do they say about the state of the country and the quality of life? Um, the quality of life in Venezuela has really collapsed in the last two years in particular. Um, there's no food. There's really not enough food. Um, the government tries to distribute some imported food with what little money they have door to door, but it's really not enough. Uh, in the shops, um, the price control system has kind of collapsed. So now there is some food in the shops, but prices are so high that people just can't afford it. Uh, there's no medicine. There's really not enough medicine. If you go to the hospital with even a minor ailment, there will be doctors and nurses there and, and hospital beds, but there won't be any drugs or any medical equipment. Um, so patients are expected to bring everything they need for their own treatment down to things like surgical gloves and gauze if you need a, a surgery. And um, you can't find those things in regular pharmacies because they're not produced locally and there are not enough dollars to bring them in from outside. Uh, it's a really desperate situation. Uh, a consortium of Venezuelan universities, of independent Venezuelan universities, did a household survey last year where they asked, I think, over 5,700 households around the country about their living conditions. And they found that three out of every four people they talked to reported that they had lost body weight due to hunger in the last 12 months. They just can't find enough food to maintain their body weight. And we're not talking a little body weight. We're talking around 20 pounds on average um, people were, were losing in the 75% of the population. So it's, it may not be a crisis where people are dying of starvation, but it's, it is a crisis where there is real hardship and where virtually everyone you talk to in Venezuela now is either making plans to emigrate, emigrating, uh, thinking about ways of leaving the country, et cetera. You know, the people who had the money or the assets and the education to leave 
in an orderly way, largely have done so in the last 10 years. And now you have flows of really desperate people who are hungry uh, going on foot to Colombia, going on foot to Brazil through the jungle because the, the Brazilian border is in a really remote area. And hospitals in northern Brazil near the Venezuelan border are, are collapsing because of the influx of malnourished and sick Venezuelans who just can't get treatment for things like malaria and that they, they desperately need to treat. So how long is this sustainable? How long can the country survive under these conditions? It's a question that we ask ourselves just about every day. Um, the government is really locked inside an ideological bubble created in Havana. I mean, should, we should underline that the Venezuelan government has a very close relationship with the Cuban dictatorship and has always looked up to Cuba as a kind of mentor and a guide to how you institute kind of authoritarian socialism in Latin America and how you keep power even if as you impoverish people. Um, in Cuba, it, people have remained you know, six decades in conditions of deep poverty and with very little respite and barely getting by. And the, the fear in Venezuela and the fear that so many Venezuelans have and the reason people are leaving is that Venezuela seems to be signing up for the, for the same thing and for similar reasons. The people at the top of the regime are doing very, very well for themselves. Uh, brand new SUVs, all the fancy food and drink that you can imagine, uh, mansions, beach houses, whatever you want. So um, it, it's hard to overstate that the, to what degree the country is being really looted by its own government. It's, it's, it's a predatory regime that has taken this oil-rich country, has um, bled it dry, and they've now re recognized that they just need to stay at, at the top of it by force. So Francisco Toro, based on that, wh where is the government getting the money? Well, there's there's still some oil money coming in, not as much as there used to be, of course, but there's, so they're still exporting around 750,000 barrels of oil to the U.S. every single day. So you multiply that by about $20 a barrel, which is the, the net uh, take on that, and you're still getting $15 million every single day of oil for, to the U.S., there's not enough money to feed a country of 30 million people. Of course, it's 50 cents a day, but nor are they using the money for that. Now, you know, there, there's a kind of shamelessness and an aggressiveness to the way these assets are stripped. Let's talk about Nicolas Maduro. He was vice president under Hugo Chavez. When he passed away, he took over the presidency. And yet you have a government that is a constitutional democracy. By all accounts, he appears to be a dictator. Can you talk about him, his leadership, and his control of the Venezuelan government? Well, it's funny because in Venezuela we have a dictatorship, but we don't necessarily have a dictator in the classic mold. You know, Maduro is not a Chavez-like figure that can just boss around the people inside his movement. I think it's better to think of him as sort of a, the first among equals. So, you know, there's a group of about six or seven faction heads in, in Venezuela who control large chunks of the economy, of the oil industry, of the armed forces, and Maluto sort of referees between them. He is a former uh, bus driver and bus driver's union leader. Um, he is 
entire political imagination is crafted by Cuba. He never he finished high school. He didn't go to university. Instead, he spent a couple of years in Cuba at a school for basically political activists and, and the far-left cadres that, that Fidel Castro was deploying around Latin America. He went back to Venezuela. He joined in the 1980s his party called the Liga Socialista, uh, the Socialist League, which was a really fringy party. I don't think they ever got more than 1% of the vote in an election, um, but it was clearly a Havana plant. Uh, it was just the pro-Cuban socialist left's vehicle inside Venezuela. And a lot of the people in the leadership clique around him came up through the Liga Socialista, which, again, was you know an asterisk party. Uh, in during the democratic era in Venezuela and ended up in all these positions of, of amazing power and authority. Um, but but I don't think, I, I think the tendency is to want to say, okay, so who's in charge? And so you find this one guy who's in charge, Maduro, and you, you think that, that it's time to him. And it, it really isn't like that. It's more a system with like a five, six, seven players that are at the heads of important factions in Venezuela that just extract value out of the country with Maduro playing the more chairman role than a classic dictator role. So based on the economic situation in Venezuela that you outlined earlier in our conversation, how does that affect the control he has on his government and on his people? Well, Maduro lacks the key things that Chavez used to keep control of the country without having to be a really violent and repressive dictator. Chavez was charming. Chavez was charismatic. People liked him. Uh, he could get on TV, give a speech, and get people to rally around him. And he, of course, had tons of money. He had that trillion-dollar bonanza. Maduro has none of the charm, none of the charisma, and none of the money. So what has he done? He has replaced those things with violence and intimidation. Um, Chavez did have political prisoners, but, you know, a dozen, two dozen maybe. Under Maduro this year, thousands of people have been arrested and hundred, over 160 people remain as political prisoner, uh, pr- prisoners right now. Um, Maduro has used the armed forces to break up protests against him. And, and we should be clear, there have been a lot of protests against the government this year. And even peaceful rallies with um, senior citizens and children just get met with tear gas and robber bullets and, and riot riot cops. So um, there's been uh, – Maduro's tactic for staying in power has been to use what he has, which is – the power of the state, the power to intimidate. Um, you should take into account, now that there's this really difficult problem with food distribution and availability of food, um, the government can use access to food as a political weapon, too. Um, there's a program now for bringing food door-to-door to people who can't find enough on the stores. And the government implements it, but they keep careful track of the political position of each household. And if you are seen to be protesting or to be dissenting, it's dead simple for them to just take you off the food distribution list, and then you just don't eat. Vice President Pence was in the region this week with stops in Argentina and Colombia. What message is the Trump administration giving the Venezuelan government? Uh, Vice President Pence, it should be noted, knows a lot about Venezuela. He understands uh, quite in some detail what the political dynamic is. He knows the main players, and he's been in contact with them. And I think Venezuelans have really started to understand him. Well, pro-democracy, the Venezuelans have started to understand him as an ally. 
Um, the problem is that the administration's message has been confused by, uh, well, by President Trump uh, using this very badly thought out talk of possible invasions and military options at a press conference last week, which really muddied the waters. Um, the U.S. strategy, which has been a good strategy, has been to isolate Maduro diplomatically to make it clear that uh, the region as a whole does not stand uh, for dictatorship or a return to dictatorship. They've gotten 52 countries to stand against the, the government's attempt to to convoke a super uh, parliament that can overrule anything the democratically elected parliament can do. They've gotten the European Union on board, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Argentina, you know, all of Canada, the U.S., all the big countries in the region, even countries that have long traditions of not neutrality and non-interference in other countries' affairs, like Mexico, which is, is very strong at this point, and even Switzerland made a statement. Even Switzerland, think about that, made a statement rejecting um, the authoritarian drift in Venezuela. So the diplomatic push to do this was going very well until President Trump threatened uh, military action, at which point we sort of regressed all the way back because military action is absolutely unacceptable to Venezuelans and to the rest of the region. And then you had even countries that had been really opposed and strongly um, moving diplomatically to isolate the Maduro regime, such as the Kuczynski, uh, the Kuczynski uh, administration in Peru, had to go back and uh, and decry uh, the the President Trump's uh, message. So, uh, I think a lot of Venezuelans were deeply disheartened to to hear that. Um, so, so, and, you know, so, did a, the president's comments prop up President Maduro, at least in the short term? Yes, they very clearly did, um, because it was not a credible threat. If if it had been a credible threat. Um, if it had been uh, prepared with – if the political work of talking to leaders in Congress and talking to leaders in multilateral organizations, talking to allies in the region to prepare diplomatically for military action, if those things had been done, maybe the threat would have been credible. And then the Venezuelan government would have thought, wow, we have a real problem in our hands. They, they might have backed down. But because it was just plainly ad-libbed and off the cuff and there was no preparation work, the Venezuelan government very quickly realized that this was hot air and that they could use it for propaganda purposes. And Venezuelan state propaganda, which is very aggressive uh, at any day of the week, has just had a field day over the last week, uh, playing and replaying Trump's comments, uh, using them to justify further oppression of opponents, using them to mobilize the military to support the regime even more strongly. It's been a propaganda godsend. It's you know, the, the, These kinds of remarks are the kinds of... It's the kind of thing that Nicolas Maduro stays up at night you know, hoping and wishing for. So let me conclude with this question. Generally, from your perspective, what's next for your country? And do you see any change of leadership over the next couple of months or the next year? Well, Venezuela has a, a very serious problem now, but the international community, including very much the United States, does have leverage. And this should be clearly understood. Uh, but the United States is buying 720,000 barrels of oil each day from Venezuela, which is the thing that keeps the Venezuelan regime going. 
when you go to a Citgo station, Citgo, your audience should probably know, is owned by Venezuela, and you pump gas, you're putting money in Nicolás Maduro's pocket. Okay? So um, there's been some talk of, of sanctions, of cutting off the flow of Venezuelan oil um, to the United States. I think that's extreme because there's so little food already flowing to Venezuela that if you cut that off entirely, you could do real damage. But there are things that the U.S. can do. The U.S. can say any oil that gets uh, sold by Venezuela and, and, brought, uh, and bought in the United States, the proceeds of that have to go into a trust fund that can only be spent in ways that benefit the Venezuelan people. In ways, for example, that the democratically elected National Assembly, which is opposition control, can have some say over. Um, there are smart sanctions that the United States could pursue that could make a real difference uh, in Venezuela. So we shouldn't be fatalistic about this. Um, the international community has a strong role to play. The Venezuelan government does not enjoy being isolated and being treated as a pariah and being thrown out of international organizations like Mercosur and the OAS. There is pressure to be to be put on the Venezuelan state. Ultimately, though, I think it's clear that um, Venezuela can only hope for a real change the day that the regime's own supporters in the military and in the civilian bureaucracy say enough is enough, we will not stand by as Venezuela democracy is, is killed uh, and we will not be silent just to, to ensure our access to a plate of food. So the, the change has to come to it from within if it's going to be a um, sustainable and democratic change. But the international community can play a very constructive role by continuing to put pressure and by setting down norms and making sure that it's clear to the Venezuelan government what is acceptable and what is not. Where in Venezuela did you grow up? I grew up in Caracas, in the capital. Lovely city back then. Francisco Toro, we thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.